We originally planned for this author in conversation to uh, tack on to the second half of our regular edition of Cool Story, but my conversation with Elise went for a juicy, juicy over an hour, which we could simply not cut down. And so here it is, a special standalone delicious edition of Cool Story with our special guest, Elise Lunen. You are listening to Cool Story, normally with Brie and Bridie. Today it is Brie and Elise because we are doing an author special. I am joined by Elise Lewin, who has written a New York Times bestseller again. We'll get to that. It's called On Our Best Behavior. The subtitle in Australia here is The Price Women Pay to Be Good. Hi, Elise. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you to your partner, wherever she is, for letting me take her seat. <laughs> it's 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 so exciting to get to speak to you. I know you've only been in the country a couple of days. Welcome. Thank you. I'm going to stay forever. Do you, you love it here? It's wonderful. I'm you sorry. guys, you know, I think you know what you're doing here. Clearly, everyone's so nice and warm and relaxed. Sydney has turned it on for you, I will say, oh. weather-wise. Yeah. <laughs> Spring has sprung. It's beautiful. I actually want to start with the subtitle because I noticed that in America it explicitly, the subtitle includes a reference to the seven deadly sins. Yeah. Do you think that's, I mean, there's the whole marketing thing, which is not as interesting to me about Australia being a more secular audience, but maybe for people who have not heard of the book or are not familiar, can you explain that that premise? Yeah. So. As you mentioned in America, it is the seven deadly sins and the price women pay to be be good. And they create the superstructure of the book. So each chapter is about a sin. And to remind you what they are, it is sloth, pride, envy, greed, gluttony, lust, anger. And I needed a reminder. I just, for context, did not grow up in a religious household. I um, would never have thought that these sins applied to me or I didn't subscribe to them. I didn't choose to abide by them. I, um, you know, had vague, vague ideas of what they were. But when I started working on this book, on this quest for what is it about women and this quote-unquote goodness that we try to subscribe to culturally, where did this come from? Mm. And that's where I landed was that was the checklist, the seven deadly sins, in a way that sent chills up and down my spine because a full body recognition. A full body recognition. And also sort of that a recognition and then also that revelation, which I think we all know is true, but that these systems that we don't necessarily consciously choose circumscribe and define our lives in ways that we're not always aware of. And it's not always it's not always an option to just opt out. Oh, it's not an option at all. Culture is so contagious. It's a virus that we whisper into each other's ears. It's incredibly hard to rail against it, one, to identify it even, and then to say, I do not choose to participate. And the argument of the book is that in our quest for quote-unquote goodness, which is how we have endured in a culture not built for women— in, in our patriarchy, that we uphold these ideas of what it is to be a good woman, and then we police each other as well. And, you know, and a good woman is a woman who needs no rest, has no wants and desires, no, has no appetite, needs no recognition or praise or affirmation, and is never upset about any of it. Never hungry, never upset. Ugh, yeah. 
Yeah. I got so much out of even the introduction, the foreword to your book. Before, I've chosen three of the sins that I want to focus on because otherwise we could be here yeah, for- Yeah, well, we'd be here for a really long a time. A long time. <laughs> but actually, before we do that, I have a couple of questions about sort of your work. Something I'm always really interested in, I've been writing full-time now for eight years and I do a lot of, I'm fortunate, I love this part of my job to get to speak to other authors from around the world. And something I'm always curious about when I get to talk to someone such as yourself who is very successful, you've co-written multiple New York Times bestsellers, you have a fantastic podcast called Pulling the Thread and shout out to fellow Substacker, a newsletter with the same name. You could have written any book. What I'm always curious to hear and I would love to hear you speak to is why this book and Mm. why now? Yeah. So I have co-written 12 books. I started in my 20s as a way to make extra money and was convinced until three years ago, four years ago, that I really didn't have a book in me. What? Really? (laughs) I know. I just hadn't. I never, for whatever reason, I think it's because growing up, I grew up in a rural state in America and Montana. Books were my best friend. We all know that story. In general, I had such deep reverence for writers Mm. that I just couldn't define myself as a writer. And I think because I grew up in service journalism and I never really let myself go on a page, does I that make sense? in an interview you said that for most of your career you never had your own bylines. You always no. wrote under the just the sort of that anonymized mm-hmm. editorial yeah. headline. Yeah. yeah, I liked – and I liked that. I worked at a magazine without bylines, Lucky Magazine. I worked at Goop where we were almost entirely anonymous. No one would have known that I even worked there except that we launched a podcast and then there was a TV show and – So that's how I, you know, was pushed out of hiding. But I very much preferred, or I would have said that I preferred. I think I just felt safer, um, which I write about in the chapter on pride. And I know tall poppy syndrome is a big thing in Australia. Cute. It's on my list of questions. Yeah, we'll get there. So it was just incredibly difficult for me to own this wanting of wanting to write my own book. And for anyone who's listening, I'll say, one, I know how hard it is to write a book. It's much easier to ghostwrite and co-write and help other people get their ideas down on the page. It's very difficult to write your own book and be close to the subject for a long amount of time by yourself. But there are lots of small books in the world, you know, like very small, specific topics. And it's so much work and it's so hard Mm. that I wanted to wait until I felt like I had sort of a boil the ocean idea and questions that I could wrestle with for years and then talk about Mm. for years because you're in this process for a long time. I don't think people realize. I've been thinking about this since 2019, and I'll still be talking about this book hopefully in the years to come. But honestly, more than that, it was my agent shaking me. She had taken me on when I was, you know, 22, just doing these – ghostwriting deals for me out of the truly the kindness of her heart because it's not good money. But um, she was like, what are you doing? Mm. You know, stop it. And I really had this come to sort of Jesus with myself. And as soon as I opened up the myself to the idea that I would write a book, once I found the question I wanted to wrestle to the ground, it happened. 
Wow. Yeah. That's so good. Something I think a lot of people struggle with is waiting for somebody to either invite them or shove them yeah. to to go for such a huge solo project yeah. themselves. Yeah. But really you want to choose a question if you're if you're writing nonfiction that you can imagine wrestling with and tussling with for years. Mm. That's a fire. That's something that's that you really want to get your arms around. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe could you, if you could, share the story of this, the the breathing stuff yeah. and, and your, the sort of, I, what, what, how am I trying to say this? How you came to arrive at where you, we then join you at the starting point yeah. of this journey in this book. Yeah. So I opened the book writing about my chronic hyperventilation. And most people hear hyperventilation and they think that it's someone breathing into a paper bag. I did. I'd never heard of this. Right? And so many women have reached out to me to say, oh, my God, that's what this is. They've never been diagnosed. My dad happens to be a lung doctor, which is why I know that this is something my mom does, my aunt does, et cetera. But it started for me in my 20s. And what happens is that your lungs are full of oxygen. You have plenty of oxygen, but there's some sort of mind-body mix-up where you're convinced that you need to take a deep breath. And you go to inhale and you hit a wall and you can't get a deep breath unless you yawn. And sometimes that doesn't work. And as you can imagine, anyone listening can imagine if you don't know what's happening, and even if you do know what's happening, it's really scary. It sounds terrifying. It sounds... Yeah. Yeah. So the first time it happened to me in my 20s, I went to the emergency room. I was convinced I was going to die. They, you know, told me it was nothing, and which is always... Great to hear. And love a good big good old-fashioned medical gaslighting. Yes. <laughs> love it. Exactly. Yeah. And then since then it's happened, particularly in times of stress and sleep deprivation and overcaffeination. But at this particular moment, and I think that I had told myself, you know, in my 20s, I think when it first happened, I was in a really tough spot at work and I felt like I had no control over my life. And it all made sense to me. And I was convinced as I moved forward in my career and became more secure, more safe, more assured somehow that I would outrun this. I would outgrow this. I would get my arms around it. And then there I was in 2019 when I opened the book in a period of hyperventilation that had been going on for, I think, two months. It's possible it was three, where every day, every afternoon, I couldn't breathe. And I was yawning sighing, moving through my life, looking sedate, like looking sleepy, right? Narcoleptic almost, and inside just full of this consuming anxiety and this fixation on the fact that I couldn't breathe. And I realized, despite what I had achieved in my life, that I was still plagued by these ideas that I wasn't good enough, I wasn't safe, I wasn't secure, I wasn't thin enough, like, go, 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 do better, do more. Somehow, you know, there's a finish line somewhere in sight. And I just couldn't live like that anymore. Mm. And I knew that instead of running and driving myself forward, that I needed to turn and face these voices and come to understand what they were and where they were coming from. And it will surprise absolutely no one that I quickly realized that they're universal to most women, not the only one consumed with not feeling like I'm enough. 
despite like definitely looking like I've achieved a lot, you know, despite all exterior, you, you know, you were accolades. ticking a lot of boxes. Yeah. And it was not. And it wasn't enough. Yeah. yeah. And so that's where I started. What is this? Mm-hmm. What is this? It feels like, you know, a boogeyman. It feels like a ghost, you know, but can I give it a shape? Can I understand its contours? Can you find language? Can you find? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to, that is this internalized, task mastery, you know, shame-inducing voice that's extolling me to be good. Which leads us perfectly to the sin that you chose to open with, yes. sloth. Yes, Of, I mean, you could have started with lust or wrath. Why start with sloth? Because I don't know any woman who does not feel like she should always be doing more. All I look around at all of my mates and there I just see this sea of women fucking kicking ass, yep. taking names day after day after day. And I love them so much and I'm so proud of them and I, I, I'm glad that I live in a time and a place where we can celebrate each other's ambition and each other's mm-hmm. wins. But I also, because I know them well, I know that they are exhausted yes. and I know that they are wrecked. And I know in myself as well that the drive is not always coming from a positive place. No, no. I describe it as my internal cattle prod, you know, and I think that Australian for- audiences will resonate with <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, my husband said to me, you know, in, in the time that we've been married, you haven't been able to sit and watch a TV show with me for more than 20 minutes. Meanwhile, my husband just like wears grooves into the couch with his butt. Like he's such a good relaxer and he's really good at doing that with our children. Whereas I, you know, I'm up, I'm getting my computer, I'm multitasking, I'm loading the dishwasher. I'm just like this idea that I'm not doing enough is such a plague And for a long time, for most of my life, you know, I look at all the data. I recognize that women are doing both more at the office and at home than men. It's pretty – the statistics are staggering and they're not really improving despite the conversation that we're having about it. And what I had to face, which is uncomfortable, is that, you know, I grew up in a progressive family. My husband's a feminist. I'm the primary breadwinner. And he's not insisting that our house be spotless and organized. He's not asking for home-cooked meals every night, much less ever. He – nobody is putting this pressure on me except for myself trying to abide by the standards that we recognize as what it is to be a good woman, a good mother, a good partner. It's come back. It comes back to that thing though about how you can't just opt out. No, you can't understand it on a sort of academic, rational level, and therefore be free. Yeah, it's in the air. It's in the air, and I was enforcing it on myself as much as I was railing against it. And it's very. This book is very much. You know, and this is tricky because I don't want to, you know, blame victims here, but it was very much taking sort of being someone who could rail against the system. And yes, let's rail against the system. And in America, it's like Mitch McConnell, not my favorite guy, right? But I recognize like in all of our conversations about patriarchy and inequity that we were talking about it, patriarchy, like a bogeyman. And I wanted, I was like, who is it? What is it? Mm. You know, is it Mitch McConnell? 
in mm. Oz behind a curtain. He wishes. <laughs> yeah. Pushing the stuff on yeah, me. Yeah. And I recognize, like, this is an ancient system and it's alive. And I am uh, living. I'm breathing life into it. Mm. You are breathing life into it. But it, it does take collective action to recognize that and say, whoa, 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 wait, stop. Like, I'm not doing it. I'm just going to sit on my butt all day, you know, and watch the tumbleweed move across my living room. And most likely what I've also found in that in trying to stop, to embrace my sloth, that my husband does know how to do laundry. <laughs> He's happy to do it. I'm just have been so efficient in doing all the things for everyone all the time that there wasn't a lot of he doesn't do it on my schedule. Mm. On page this is we're speaking um about something in particular that occurs on page 34, um, and I'm reading verbatim. My husband does not share my, brackets, irrational perspective, I suspect, simply because as a man he's immune from the programming that he should be proving his worthiness by doing more. He feels no compulsion to make all his time have redeemable value. For him, once he's done his day job and the boys are asleep, it is enough. I will forever be apprehensive about my adequacy, plagued by the idea that I could and should do more hard relate to yes. that just this idea of productivity and worth and yeah. how gendered it seems to be that um even if you sort of tick off everything on your to-do list it's it's not actually about the list mm -hmm. it's about whether or not you believe what is what who you are and how you live is just worthy of yes. both work rest and and play yeah and it's gendered. It is. This is, you know, there's this amazing woman, Carol Gilligan. She's she's very old now, but she is a psychologist who did formative, formative work. She wrote this book called In a Different Voice, and it's about how morality develops in both boys and girls. Oh, this part made me so sad, uh, and it yeah. gave me goosebumps. I know. So two things that, I mean, there's a lot in her work that's stunning, but a lot of it is about, you know, how girls become dislocated from their voices, literally and otherwise. But she talks about how boys come to believe that they're supposed to be in the world, while girls are come to believe that they're supposed to be in service to the world. And then she talks about how in watching the maturation of boys and girls, the word don't comes to enter their vocabulary. And for women, for girls, it's I don't know. And for boys, it's I don't care. <sighs> That's right. That's the bit that made me I know. so it's, sad. It's staggering. And yet you look at where we are. And obviously that both of those statements are a fallacy. And yet that's where we're culturally led, mm. you know, where women are disavowing and I feel like within that specific example, you have such a powerful two phrases that also tell you everything that's wrong with patriarchy in how it hurts boys as well as girls. Yes. Yeah. That is yes. you're looking at both sides of how it hurts everyone. Yes. And it traps everyone. Yes. And that's those are the conversations that we collectively need to have, how wounding it is, how we need the next iteration of a, a culture, society. And I think that men understandably don't engage in this conversation because they're they're worried that they're going to be blamed, right? Mm -hmm. And in the same way, you know, we're, we have a lot of conversation, and I know you guys are having conversations here about Indigenous 
rights, et cetera, all the time. And similarly in America, we're in the same conversations and about systemic racism, and we've had a really hard history. And it's that difference between saying, like, I didn't choose this, I was born into this, and yet it's still my responsibility to attend to it and evolve, mm -hmm. right? And for men, I think it's it's become a scary patriarchy. They just sort of hide or tune out, but it does affect them. It does wound them. And it's not their fault. We're all supporting and upholding this system and this structure, mm. you know? Mm. For people who are listening who've not yet picked up a copy of the book, I just want to add as well that there's a really fantastic You've achieved a lot in a small space, like introduction to the patriarchy at the beginning of the book. Yeah. Um, and you sort of say, you know, you can skip this if you want. But I found it was the perfect, like, what do they call that? Like a primer or something? Yes. 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 Oh, it, you know, the phrase we've been using is that it's just sort of in the air and it's like a bogeyman and it's hard to name. But yeah. Oh, I loved that. Thank you. No, it's my yeah. favorite chapter. Yes. And I worked really hard on it to ensure that it could stay in the book and that it wouldn't be too academic and turn people off. But for me, I mean, these are questions I had, again, mm. where I was like, is patriarchy inevitability? Where did it come from? Is this how it's always been? And as I came to read and read and read and read about it, it it's just full of surprises. Yes. And also promise that we are far more creative, far more collective, far more affiliative. The feeling I had overall was once you learn how it has been created brick by brick, it implicitly allows you to realize it can be undone brick by brick. Yes. Yes. And I don't think that it's even like, let's burn it all down, you know, it's but instead it's like, oh, once we understand that we're living in a house that's been structured, mm. we can remodel it. Yeah. You know, we can understand where all the provenance of all of these materials and choose something else. Mm. I want to move to the second scene I want to talk about, which is probably unsurprisingly envy. Yes. It's, well, it's so good <laughs> to finally be able to have a language and a framework to have really fucking interesting conversations with women about yes. envy. <sighs> Just really I was so excited when I read this about okay. how many how many spaces between people it would open up to yeah. to just get to a better understanding of themselves, a better understanding of each other and how we can help each other instead of I think there was one example of being crabs in a bucket just yes, yes. tearing each other down. Yeah. But before we super super launch in, I do think it would be useful to, for people listening to hear a brief refresher on what is the difference between jealousy and yeah. envy, how we can even think about what envy is. Yeah. So jealousy, you know, we hear that all the time. It can be even almost a compliment, like, I'm so jelly, I'm so jealous, you know. But jealousy requires a third. Mm. So we can think of it in the context of a relationship and being back in high school, you know, where there's another person vying for the object of your affection. That's jealousy when you can sort of triangulate it against someone else. Envy, on the other hand, is one-to-one. -one. It's much more intimate, and it has this malicious, I think because of its intimacy, like this sort of nastiness about it, right? We, we're comfortable saying that we're jealous. I don't think that we're comfortable saying that we're envious. And maybe that's also because it's a sin for some people, classically, 
even though the sins were not in the Bible, but that's a story for another day. Yeah, I, I had a lot of history <laughs> questions here, and I was like, we're going to be here for three hours. <laughs> yep. So envy, and and this started, this was sort of concurrent with me contending with my hyperventilation. I had this, I interviewed Lori Gottlieb, who wrote this book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. She's a psychotherapist, great writer. And there was a very small moment in her book that just stuck with me for weeks and months where she said that she tells her clients to pay attention to their envy because it shows them what they want. And this just felt like the biggest revelation I'd ever heard. And then I was sad also because I realized I don't know what I want. Mm. I don't even know what I want. And then I realized I could reverse engineer this and figure out if I – felt envy, then maybe that was showing me. But ultimately, I recognized that envy and wanting were both foreign to me, but definitely felt. And that what I think I was doing, and this is the thesis I share in the book, and I think that this is true for majority of women as well, majority of people, is that I would feel envy. I wouldn't be able to diagnose it. And it would feel bad. And in my quest to feel good, I don't want to feel bad. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I would repress it, suppress it, and then project it onto <laughs> repress, the person. Suppress, project. <laughs> yes. Repress, suppress, project. It's the AA saying, like, you spot it, you got it. But I would sort of see a woman and have this, like, feeling of discomfort and irritation. This is where I just don't like her. She rubs me the wrong way. Who does she think she is? That one is the big one. Yeah. Who does she think she Who is? Who does she think she is? Yeah. Why does she think that she deserves that? Um, for me, it was like, I didn't think her book was that good. Just that, <laughs> you know, the deprecation that also we're told is who we are as women. We're told it's like, oh, that's women are just catty bitches. It's like, no, actually, that's undiagnosed envy. That woman is bothering you, tormenting you. To, to quote Richard Schwartz, your mentor, showing you what you want. Mm. It's just full of information because you'll find, I'm sure you've noticed this with your friends, now that I've been on this kick for years, I can interrupt it and identify it. And all of my friends, the people that bother my friends are not the same people who bother me. Like, I don't see it, you know? And I just want to clarify, I'm not saying – uh, when you can identify behavior, so like if there's a politician in, in America, we have, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for mm. example. I can identify all of the things that she does that are abhorrent and harmful to different populations. But you can name them. I can name all of the behavior. Yes. She herself does. I don't care. I don't like her like weird Corella DeVille coats. But, but you like, don't have to because her policies are so her abhorrent. Her policies are just, abhorrent. Yes. So yes, when you can identify, you can you are absolutely allowed to dislike someone's behavior, policies. You're allowed to dislike their creative material too. But it, you'll know if it's the person. You'll know if there's sort of heat there. Yes. That something else is at play, and it's really good information. It's your soul saying you want this. You want this. Pay attention. Mm. In Australia, as you mentioned, we have huge tall poppy here. And I found it – something I found in my life is that often men will hurt women and then women will hurt women. Mm -hmm. And there's something that happens with the 
envy, who does she think she is conversation where it it just seems like such a waste of energy and so unfortunate that often the most policing I have ever felt and certainly my friends who are now well into their 30s, the most policing they ever feel is from other women. Yeah. And I wonder, and I, I really, for a long time I was like, what's this about? Because we've come through so many different waves of feminism. We all talk about having each other's backs and we all talk about sort of mm-hmm. collectivizing and supporting each other and lifting each other up. And when I read these examples in your book of like, oh, she just rubs me the wrong way. These, these sort of like vague phrases and just this sort of shit talk, I realized mm-hmm. just how much it was undiagnosed envy. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about where that um, false scarcity comes from? Yeah. Isn't it? I just want to say too, it's like, it's just so heartbreaking and crushing. And um, I will say that those parts of the book seem to be offering the most relief, just that people can talk to about this stuff again. Yes. And try to parse it and be honest about it. Whereas, because I think in in America, at least, we have a lot of like women empowering women and hashtag, you know, just stuff that you're like, it's embarrassing to even have to say this, right? But there's a lot of that happening in the culture that's, I think people are looking at that and saying that doesn't actually feel true. Mm. And it, it doesn't reflect and how I live my everyday life. Yeah. And it's yeah. shutting down the conversation, even though that's not the intent. It's like sort of papering over what I think is a, lo- a felt reality for a lot of women, which is that at work and elsewhere, their greatest allies have been men and not women. And that's been crushing. And we need to be able to talk about why, mm. because women are amazing. And if we could get on side with each other, watch out. And the thing about this book is that the sins Venn diagram and crash into each other. So as you mentioned with Tall Poppy, pride and envy are very related. Yes. And so is greed and this idea of scarcity. And that if you get that book deal, that means I don't get that book deal. Mm. That if you get that job, I'm not looking at the other men who I could replace in that boardroom. I'm looking at you and the the sad thing about that is that we know that in say if we use the boardroom as an example in a corporate setting it can be really hard for multiple women to reach the top because there are very real factors that push them out and keep them down and we know that in corporate environments men who hold positions of power often don't like feeling like women are taking over and Mm -hmm. so they will allow one or two and they won't allow any more. Or what we see happen quite often with leadership is that a woman will be given a leadership position when a company or a department is in crisis yep. and then sort of booted out. Yep. And so what is frustrating is that there are some scenarios where the scarcity is sort of real or genuine. Mm-hmm. But I think that there is so much more negativity between women that happens that doesn't need to when there is actually no scarcity. Yeah. And the scarcity could change. Yes. And we have a much greater chance of changing that those dynamics and changing the ratio mm. instead of it being like I need to dethrone or deplace you and you protecting your turf rather than saying, okay, how do we expand this? How do we um, move, move this more towards parity and equity mm. instead of it being this constant competition, which I think we just fall into those traps and take each other on. 
Um, and with pride, what's interesting is that you'll hear women say, I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be, you know, one of my best mom friends back in the States was promoted to be the president of a very, a, a really big cultural institution, a, a music company. And I asked her, I was like, oh, did the, you know, did a press release go out? And she was like, oh, I asked them not to announce it. I like, I don't want anyone to know. It's just not worth it. Like my my mandate hasn't changed. My job hasn't changed. So I don't really want to be, I don't want the attention because mm. she didn't want to inspire envy or become any more of a target, target than she already is. Because as you mentioned, and I'm guessing that the playbook is similar here in America, we love to sort of, we love an underdog. We love an up-and-comer, and then they hit sort of that moment in the culture where we've decided that they have had enough and they need to be put back in their place. They're too big for their britches, tall poppy, and then we destroy them. We do it to celebrities all the time. It's happening to Lizzo right now. I think the only reason it hasn't happened to Taylor Swift, despite so many attempts, is because she has her, like, army Swifties. Mm -hmm who will destroy you. I'm not, I don't stay up with celebrity culture, but the example you gave in the book of Jennifer Lawrence mm -hmm. treatment versus Anne Hathaway treatment yep. was, I, even I understood that. Yes. Can you talk about that yeah. dichotomy? Because it's so much about the vibe, the yes. vibe of the thing. Yeah. So I can't remember exactly what year this was, but Anne Hathaway had already experienced this sort of she did The Devil Wears Prada. She had been sort of loved. Mm. And then she was adored. Adored. And then she hit sort of peak uh, Anne Hathaway. And the downward trajectory started. And she did Les Miserables. She might have done one other movie that sort of where people, they were called the Hatha haters. And all this negative press started talking about how she's such an earnest tryhard and a loser and annoying. And she hosted, I think she hosted the Oscars. I don't remember the exact timing of this with um, James Franco. With James Franco, who was so annoying, so stoned, like being such a loser. And yet she was the one who was condemned for that, even though she was just like trying to get through like what was clearly a like possible situation. She was like trying to keep the show on track. Yes. And then people. And people were her. calling him like a talented multi-hyphenate who was like a little stoned. And meanwhile, she was so annoying and so grating, et cetera. So at that particular Academy Awards, she was nominated for Best Actress for Les Mis. The night before the Academy Awards, apparently, she had to change her dress because someone else was wearing her dress or something equivalent. And Jennifer Lawrence was nominated for Silver uh, Linings Playbook. And she was this emerging star. And Anne gets on stage and she's wearing this dress that had sort of cone boobs and she's cradling her Oscar and she says like, oh, it came true. And she just got destroyed. Meanwhile, you know, for, for that earnestness, for like daring to believe that she could have, should have won for her fashion choices, it was awful. Meanwhile, Jennifer Lawrence, you know, is like bumbling, tripping, like, don't look at me. I'm a disaster. You know, just this con this ruse of self a self-protective stance of like, I'm already sort of uh, falling apart. So no need to 
knock me down. Mm -hmm. And people loved her. She's since like gotten off social media. I think she experienced her own cycle, Mm -hmm. even as much as she anticipated that it would come. I remember in one interview, she said, everybody just got sick of me. Everybody just got sick of me. Yes. You just don't see this happening to men at all. Even like Kanye. It's like, this is still out there. Still out there. But there's a specific trajectory that really rung true for me. Uh, Like a little bit of my experience in the, you know, extremely much smaller book industry in terms of just how we, I call it that we clay shoot, pigeon shoot our talent because we go bull and we have a sexy debut and it soars sky high and we just wait and we watch it and we watch it and we watch it and it hits the top of its zenith and we go. Yes. And. Exactly. It's over. Icarus falling out of the sky. Yeah. And then we celebrate, Mm. you know, and it's funny. We can say, I think as civilian women, we can say like, that's who cares about Anne Hathaway, you know. But this is a playbook for all of us. This is what hap- This is what we're imbibing. This is what we're observing. But also calling somebody an annoying tryhard is yeah. absolutely language from the playground that yes. people really actually use to bully <laughs> other civilian human beings. Yes. It's, it is relevant. It's 100% relevant. This is, this is what we're watching. This is this, the most visible women in our culture are routinely destroyed. What does that Ooh. say to all yeah. the rest of us? Yeah. Why would anyone want to put themselves, share their gifts with the world, bring attention to their talent or their work? It's a terrible pattern to have to match to, and yet it feels like a foregone conclusion. You know, I've had some success in my life, and I've had some success with my book, and ironically, like, it would be quite meta, you know, like when, I, if this moment happens for me, but of course, it's mm. a real threat. It was much easier ghostwriting, mm. you know? Yep, not having your name in the bylines. Before we move to the third scene I want to ask about, something I noticed when I was looking back through your work and listening to some of your, even like the the dozens of episodes you've done for pulling the thread is essentially the kind of really broad-reaching methodology you've developed that has such a kind of generosity of spirit. In a lot of my nonfiction, I think from, I mean, from a trained place, but also possibly a place of insecurity slash desperation for legitimacy, I am have developed a really anti-woo-woo stance, mm. you know, it's, and yet what I'm finding in recent years is I understand, for example, that um, in particular racism and misogyny in medicine and law are very, very real and have yeah. very real impacts and that uh, like the the every extra year I'm alive, the less I trust any institution yeah. and, or institutional knowledge that has developed over the years with any degree of gatekeeping because it means it's not built for everyone. How and, and I just have so much admiration. I think one of the beautiful strengths of this book is that you take such a kind of democratic approach to where you may find wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that because it's essential to who I am and I think also to where I hope we're going because so many of the sort of woo-woo things typically are feminine. They're not, you know, bound to rigid materialism in the same way. And I don't know, every year and to, the, to what you were saying, yes, I have sort of less faith, I think, in our organizing 
principles and more of like the mantra of I don't know. Mm. And I'm really curious. And I look in all corners for mm. to shed light on what I don't know. And I also have found in my exploration of things that are um, perceived as more quote unquote woo woo that I think that it it's a lot of it's different language to describe the same phenomena, mm. you know? It's like you can – I've heard – I can't remember who said, like, the world, the universe, will eventually will be able to understand and describe it in math, music, and mythology. And That's beautiful. It's not beautiful. But, like, when you get into sort of deep physics – it starts to be so it's p- philosophy it's philosophy yeah. and there is such an alignment with what i hear from sort of the most brilliant people who work with energy for example mm. they're all they're just ex- understanding it through different lenses but and i think that one of the reasons that i like to engage with some of the woo woo is to just refine both my intuition and my discernment And to, like, keep both channels open. Mm. And I don't really take anything wholesale. Mm. I take it as a theory, but I don't find that I'm sort of betting on one particular strand of thought to the exclusion of all others. I don't want my mind to be so open that my brain falls out, (laughs) but... (laughs) (laughs) Just gets blown away in the wind. (laughs) Yeah, but I've also had enough totally bizarre, inexplicable experiences that I, my mind is open, Mm. you know? And I try to bring that to the book because it's easy. It would be really easy for me to sort of take, to over-intellectualize or use that as a shield. I think, yes, that's what I was trying to describe. Yeah, I can play in like academia. Yeah. And what's been interesting about the book has been that I don't think people know what to do with it or how to code it. <laughs> yeah. And the, and I wanted that because I wanted it to sort of land in this no man's land where is it it's it's not academic enough to please the book review desks mm. at the major newspapers yep. in America. It's not chiclet, it's not woo-woo, it's not it's just its own thing which You know, and I also wanted to write a book that would be, and I think I've succeeded with this, that it would be for people who read hard nonfiction, they'd be like, this is fun. Mm. And then for women who maybe haven't, who just read fiction or just go for like fun, easy beach reads, this will be the hardest book they read this year. You've met, you've you've nailed the sliver of an overlap in that (laughs) Venn That's what I wanted. I also, what I loved about your book, just thinking on woo-woo is how... I mean, I'm a little, I'm not professionally a history buff, but I'm a history fan and nerd. And how much from men's history has, which mm-hmm. at one stage was so incredibly respected and seemed valid, turned out to be woo-woo. Yeah. That's, I felt like there was this beautiful duality where it's like, well, how can we sort of wholesale discredit this type of knowledge? Yes. If at one stage in our past we so revered this type of knowledge and yes. that one turned out to be absolutely bogus. I know. But we've forever, since patriarchy, well, since the written word, I guess, been completely comfortable with men 
making stuff up. Making shit And creating these theories and these epics and just, like, abiding by that. And then having that be somehow a standard that needs to be disproved. Mm. Whereas so many women, it's like, if it's not completely... Watertight. Watertight. Like, it, watch out. Yeah. We'll destroy you. In the history chapter, I know we're not going into it at great length, but one of the women I write about is Maria Gambutas, who was this professor at UCLA, incredible anthropologist, and she was the one who found all these goddess figurines. And we didn't know we not being the operative word there. I don't know why I said we, but we still don't know <laughs> what they are. Are they dolls? Are they birthing talismans? Are they goddesses? And what happened was um, her work was taken on by feminists in the 70s and 80s, and then there, you see a lot of literature, a lot of sort of these big sweeping epic ideas about how it used to be a matriarchy. And there's no evidence that, that it was. And she doesn't say that. Probably matrilineal cultures, affiliative partnership style cultures, I would say a reverence for life and the female body, um, which is different than how we feel now. But there was this, not her, but this um, embrace of her work by women which you can also understand, like, let us have a voice in this. Let us have theories, right? Caused an extreme backlash to her and her work. And she was discredited. At this point, she had died, so she wasn't alive for most of this. But she had put put forward this sweeping theory of the origins of patriarchy that Kurgan's called that because of these burial mounds that they would leave in their um, – as they as they descended, these they came down from the Russian steppes, and she said they took over sort of this where Judeo you know patriarchy emerged. That they came and they took over and they pillaged and raped, et cetera. That was the origins of patriarchy, and she was mocked, derided, and guess what? She was essentially right. DNA modern DNA evidence suggests that an entire culture's DNA was replaced God. by these people from the North. Mm. But you think about sort of what's been lost, both with the absence of women's voices and then how they've been marginalized. Mm. And where where are we in these stories we tell versus where we might be if it weren't so completely lopsided? Yeah. To briefly touch on gluttony. Yeah. Which... Yeah, again, we could have just done three whole hours at least on that alone. I mean, what I'm really interested in, I've written about this myself a bit, is, and for anyone reading at home, I'm looking at pages 126, 127, is not so much the extremes of people who have like a diagnosed eating disorder, mm -hmm. although that is very real. Um, and a new report just got released in Australia about how the stats are certainly not getting any better. What I'm really interested in is a word you use here, hypervigilance, mm -hmm. and this sort of perpetual state of denying ourselves mm -hmm. actual just sustenance, let alone pleasure in food. How much does this self-talk and this sort of self-putting down, this shit-talking come into that. I think the phrase you use here is um, all of this like sort of fat talk that we have with each other where we're saying, don't rush to talk shit about me because I'll do it first. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think it starts from a place of if you're not um, deprecating yourself, then you think that you're all that. Mm. Who does she think she is? Who does she think she is, right? Um, She must think she's perfect. And so I think at a young age, we naturally enter into, or I don't want to use the word naturally, but we enter into this cultural conversation with each other where this is something that's a focus, our bodies and our plates. And I'm not an expert on eating disorders by any means, but just on my own lifelong body dysmorphia and the fact that in what I've observed, I think we're all somewhat disordered, sort of going back and forth between permitting and restricting. And you hear this, obviously, in the moralizing around, like, I was so bad today, I need to be good tomorrow, and so on and so forth when it comes to food. That hypervigilance, that idea that if we're not ever present with ourselves, micromanaging every morsel that will become out of control with our eating, our bodies will swell, you know, whatever, it will 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 lose all of our sex, whatever it is, it's all so discordant and sad because I don't know about you, but I've spent way too much of my life thinking about my body mm-hmm. And whether it's conforming or not, and um, and with no accuracy, that's the other thing. You know, it's just wild when I look at pictures of myself from college, and I look at my body, and I'm like, "Wow, you had, you looked amazing," and yet I was full of shitty self talk. You know, I'm interested specifically in the gluttony section about the phrase you used right at the top of our conversation was um, you can't just say I do not choose to participate. Yes. Because a lot of us will go through some particular phase where the unhealthy attitude towards eating, whether it's disordered eating or just some kind of hypervigilance gets really bad and we have to try and work our way out of that. Yeah. But even if you have essentially being lucky enough to be able to do that work to dig yourself out. You can't just you can't just choose to opt out. You can't just choose no. um, to no longer feel that pressure or feel those feelings. But what I do think women can do is choose not to perpetuate and participate. Yeah. And, you know, you were saying that if, I think you mentioned like a couple of years ago, you started recognizing when women would in particular would use these phrases like, oh, I just don't like her about the envy stuff. Yeah. For me, a huge turning point was realizing how I had been using phrases around like moralizing food or whether I could, oh, I can have this because I went for a run this morning. Just yeah. this crappy, pointless level of anti-fat talk, however you want to call yeah. it. And I since I made a hard line that I wouldn't do that and I don't let it be said around me, yeah, it was like a pain point for a few months in my life where I just was no. like, no, we don't talk like that. And it, but it's hard. That's like what's required is collectively interrupting those scripts with each other, those interventions. But it's incredibly hard and gluttony of all the chapters. I mean, Anti-fat bias is completely acceptable. Mm. In the states, I think only one law – there's one law in one state about how you can't actually discriminate against an employee, I think, based on their body size. Mm. But it's complete – not only is it accepted, it's still venerated. Yes. We have a medical system that is very anti-fat where we look at someone and apprise their value – 
whether they quote unquote care about themselves, whether they're disciplined. It's the sorts of morality. If you have a good body, you're a good person who um, cares about, you know, not passing on costs to taxpayers. I mean, it's really quite bizarre. Mm. And And I should say for listeners, like your book does a really good job of explaining how that intersects with other sort of cultural and identity backgrounds as well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. But it's very, um, it's very deep and very pernicious and based entirely on measures like BMI, which is a random ethnographic measure that a guy used to try and compare populations. It had nothing to do with health and nothing to do with weight. And what happened to in America, which I think is really interesting, I don't remember the exact date, but they shifted the BMI and suddenly overnight – a vast popula- part of the population who had been considered quote unquote normal became overweight and overweight became obese and obese, which is not a nice word, became morbidly obese. And then you look at where we are now and I, you, I have to wonder, you know, in our quote unquote obesity epidemic, which makes it seem like it's something you can catch, I have to wonder how much of that has been driven just by the psychographics of telling a bunch of people that they're shit. That they're shit. Yeah, and that it's lost. It's done. They've mm. lost control. Mm. And, and that the rep- the responsibility for that is yeah. squarely and solely on their shoulders for their failures. Exactly. And there's amazing data, not specifically around that, but I was just interviewing Ellen Langer for my podcast about who's you know, sort of the mother of mindfulness. She's at Harvard. She's done every amazing study that you've heard about, like the turn turn back the clock studies and the. They did a study with chambermaids where they told half of them, you know, they all said they don't exercise, they're unhealthy. They told half of them, like, actually, that's not true. Like, you're moving all day. You're like, this is serious exercise. And that intervention alone, all of their health measures improved with no other outside factors. Anyway, she was just talking about with with, um, prediabetes that there's really no difference in like a 5.9 to a 6. Statistically, there's no difference in that blood work. But whatever that point one is puts you on the line of being pre-diabetic. I don't remember the exact numbers. But when they study those two populations and one population has been told that they're Mm. pre-diabetic and one that they're normal and those that they've been told they're pre-diabetic almost invariably go on to develop diabetes – Whereas those who are told that they're normal don't. (laughs) And there's no like similar variation amongst, you know. So it's like the power of the mind. And language. And language to completely change our bodies Mm. is profound. And it's like stunning to think about how that has informed and shaped us. And not to say, again – that there should be any standard. It's actually I'm I've heard that it's similar in Australia, but it felt like we were making some progress on this. Not I don't like the word body positivity because I just don't want to be told how to feel. Yeah, we don't have to we don't have to unpick those threads right now. <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but we were making some progress until Ozempic. Yes. I was just thinking that. Yeah. 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 And apparently Ozempic is in America it's it's becoming a real class thing because it's um, – Well, of course, because you can buy it. You can and buy it, it for gives... $1,200 a month. So there are no wealthy fat people in America anymore. Mm. It's it's wild. Yeah. yeah. 
We are out of time. This has I could have done this for hours, <laughs> hours and hours and hours and hours. Um, well, but we can change it. We can change it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have been listening to Elise Lunen speak about her book on our best behavior, the price women pay to be good. It's in all good bookstores, and she also has her own fantastic podcast called Pulling the Thread and a newsletter by the same name. Elise, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. 